The choir always does excellent music, but that was just fantastic. They could just do that the rest of the summer be fine with me. And then I could preach the same sermon every week, too. <laughs> That's the deal. We are studying defiant hope, hope that fights back, hope that stands up to discouragement and depression and despair, hope that hopes against the hopeless, as Abraham said, a living hope, as Peter said, a hope that even if God slays us, we'll hope in him. We're talking about a hope that really gets us to be alive, and it's a, a work of God in our Holy, by the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And today we're going to talk about hope and uh, lamentations. And you go to Jeremiah and then lamentations. Uh, Habakkuk 3 has 66 verses. And the reason it has 66 verses is because of a poetic device that Jeremiah used. In the first two chapters and the last two chapters, he uses a letter of the Hebrew alphabet to start every verse. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, I don't know the rest of it. But anyway, uh, every verse, there are 22 verses. And he does that three times in uh, chapter 3, and so that's the reason there's 66 verses. But we need to remember, as much as it is the Word of God, it's also the Word of man, means that, as Ralph Davis says, God's inspiration doesn't bypass man's perspiration. And men searched for the right words. It wasn't like a printer that God just used their hand and mechanically. But God used man's word to be his word to speak to his people. So let's listen to it. He, uh, Lamentations 3. 1 through 33, I believe is what I have. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He's made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He's made me to dwell in the darkness like those long dead. <clears throat> he has walled me in so I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out or cry out for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has barred my way with blocks of stone. He has made my path crooked. Like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in hiding, he dragged me from the path and, and mangled me. And he left me without help. He drew his bow and made me the target for his arrows. He pierced my heart. With arrows from his quiver, I became the laughing stock of all people. They mock me in song all day long. He has filled me with bitter herbs and sated me with gall. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wondering, the bitterness and the gall. I remember them, and my soul is downcast within them. Yet this I call to mind, and I have hope, because the Lord's great love were not consumed, for His compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I said to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I wait for Him. The Lord is good. 
to those who hope in Him, to the one who seeks Him. He is good to those who wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he's young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust, Let yet there may be hope. Let him offer his cheek to the one who would strike him, and let him be filled with disgrace. For men are not cast off forever by the Lord. Though he bring grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love, for he does not willingly afflict his people, nor grief or bring grief to the children of men. This is God's word to God's people. Let's pray. Father, this is your word uh, to your people. Uh, this is you speaking to us in our situations. And would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to love and wills that are free to follow you, that we might worship you even as we listen to your word. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's not hard to imagine what it would be like to be in the middle of a storm and your house to be blown away. That happened in Rolling Stone. I mean Rolling Fork. <laughs> and it's uh, not unusual for you to imagine that you're trying to find some of the things that are precious to you. And you know, if you've looked at some of those pictures, the, the place is just devastated. And sometimes there's only one room standing and everything else is gone. And you're looking through those and you find your papers all wet and damp and your, your pictures all destroyed and your china broken everywhere. And then in the middle of all that rubble, you see a chain. And you pull that chain up and you see that little bitty diamond on the end of that chain. It might not mean much to many, any other body, but... It means a lot to you. Your mother gave it to you because her grandmother gave it to her and her grandmother before that. And in the midst of that rubble, you find something precious that gives you hope and helps you fight despair. That's what Jeremiah finds in the midst of the rubble. He finds hope. And it's like a diamond. And it sparkles in his dark night. And he begins to wonder and think about God, and he says, Great is thy faithfulness. That's the hymn we love to sing. Thomas Chisholm wrote it in the early 1900s. He wrote 1,200 hymns and songs and poems. Only one is remembered, and that's, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. And it has that line in there that we love so much. There's strength for today and hope. Or tomorrow, great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. God is faithful to his people. He's faithful to his promises. He will never let us down. As we look at this passage, I want to look at it under three heads. I want to look at the context of hope, and then the confession of hope, and then the confidence of our hope. But the context of our hope. Everything has a context. In seminary, they teach you context is king. Jeremiah isn't just a collection of poems. It, it's written in a time and space. If you wanted to give a general time, it'd be about 586 A.D., before Christ. B.C., before Christ. 586. Jeremiah is sitting in the midst of a city, Jerusalem, and it's been destroyed. 
It had been besieged for months and months, and people had starved to death, and they had practiced cannibalism, according to historians. The, the walls were broken down. The city was burned. The temple was devastated. And Jeremiah is either actually sitting in that city or he's imagining the rubble of that city. And the rubble and the, and the, and the destruction has come upon that city because of God's judgment. And Jeremiah had spent years saying, repent, turn away from your idols, turn away from your evil ways, turn away from trusting things other than God. And if you don't, God's going to send Babylon in here to crush you. And that's what's happened. He's sitting in the midst of this ruined city. But he finds in there that glimmer of hope. Great is thy faithfulness. He's crying out. He's like Job. He's lamenting. He's like the psalmist in so many places crying about what has happened to him. They're turning to God in their despair. I want you to notice several things. I want you to notice the personal nature of this. Look at verse 1. I am the man who has seen it. That I am the man. I, I, I experience this. If you were to take your pencil or your pen or just tally it on your bulletin later in the day, and go from verse 1 to verse 33, there are 49 different times that Jeremiah says, I, me, or mine. This is not just a political, this is not just a national, this is not just a city-wide tragedy that he happens to be caught up in. He feels like it's aimed at him. It's personal. You know, it's very personal. You know, it's... a. Uh, he could have said, I told you so. Instead of grieving and, and mourning, he could be mad and angry that these unfaithful, idolatrous, disobedient, evil, wicked people have made him go through this. But he doesn't say that. It's I am. It's me. It's not I told you so. You know, it happened. I'm involved. I was in the city. I got hungry. I know the ruins of this place. I love the temple. It's personal. It's painful. And did you notice how painful it was? I highlighted in my on a sheet of paper. He talks about walking in darkness. He's talking about his skin and his flesh growing old and his bones being broken. He's talking about him being besieged and him being surrounded with bitterness and hardship. He talks about dwelling in darkness and God has walled him in and God has shut out his prayers. God has acted like a lion and a bear waiting to drag him away and maul him. God's made him a laughing stock of people. It's a painful thing. He's emotionally broken. And it's really, you know, he's called the weeping prophet. And so you see that here. He's weeping over what he's experienced physically and spiritually and emotionally. It's painful. But he realizes it's providential. The providence of God is where God rules over all creation, over all his creatures and all their actions. So another word maybe you could use is sovereignty, but providence is talking about what God does the here and now. You know, when we consider devastating things to happen, we blame somebody or something. You know, 
you'd be tempted to have Jeremiah write, those Babylonians, you know, those wicked, godless people, you know, why did they make us starve to death, you know? And But he pushes it back to the primary cause that God has allowed this to happen and he has unloosed, unleashed the Babylonians on his people. And the problem that he sees is God is behind all of that. And you can read that. You can read, he made me, he besieged me, he made me, he walled me in, he barred me, he did this, he did it. And he's talking about God. Because God's justice and judgment has come. He's lost his hope, verse 18. So I say, my splendor is gone. My strength is gone, is how some translate. And all that I hope for from the Lord is gone. It's a hopeless situation, is what he's saying. And then all of a sudden, in verse 21, he says, Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. This I call to mind. What is the this? What's he calling to mind? He's calling to mind the promises of God. And more specific than that, he's calling to mind the person of God and his attributes and who he is. Some people say when he says calling to mind and he's dragging it up from his memory or he's making himself think about it. He, he's talking about an, these are intentional uh actions he is i i find myself discouraged and i find myself uh, despairing and what i have to do is i have to force myself to look at something else and think about something else that god is good god's my father god is with me god will never leave me god is going to use all my trials for good and for his own glory god is going to even if i die he's going to take me to glory and i'll have everlasting life and we have to force ourselves to to fight that despair by dragging up the promises of God and looking at the person of God. And my question to you this morning is real easy and it's very scholarly. It's going to show I went to seminary. What can you drag up in the middle of your despair? Do you have anything in there? Have you got anything underlined in your Bible or hidden away in the back of your mind or buried in your heart? Then in the midst of dark times, you can think about, drag up, meditate, ponder, and it bring you hope. I was convicted as I studied this. I'm going, my memory, uh, my memory work is awful. Why do we ask the kids to memorize to the sixth grade and then we just act like it's nobody else's responsibility? But in order to fight for this defiant hope, we have to be able to drag up some things in our memory. You know, if you don't like writing in your Bible because it's a nice leather-bound, you know, $150 Bible, get your $5 Bible. Underline, highlight, circle, things you can find quickly, memorize them. They're essential in hope. The second thing is we have the confession of hope. Hope makes a confession because of the great love of the Lord we're not consumed for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
His confession is the faithfulness of God, the love of God, the mercy of God. There's a content to all of this hope. This hope is not nebulous and, and like jello. You can't nail it to the wall. This, this hope has, has definition. It has substance. It has uh, content. And it's the love of God, the compassion of God, and the faithfulness of God. And when you say the word God's great love, every Bible translation translates that differently. And the reason is because it's so hard to translate. I just remember four or five uh, letters of the Hebrew alphabet. I gave you that. And I don't even know that many words, really. Uh, you know, I, I could give three or four, maybe. But one of the words that Van Gimmeren hammered in our head, I mean, really poured in our head every day, the Hesed of God. And you're supposed to kind of spit on people when you say that. That's a guttural hesed of God. The hesed of God is the loving kindness of God that never fails. It's the covenant love of God. It's the unconditional love of God. It's the eternal love of God. It's the love of God that will never change. It's the love of God that will never be separated from. It's steadfast. It's everlasting. Ralph Davis says it's because of the hesed of God that we're not finished off. That we're not wiped away. It's a covenant love. It's like a married couple. They stand up here and they don't stand up here and make a vow that we'll, uh, we'll marry, we're going to love each other as long as things are, you know, good. Everybody's healthy. You know, it's not multiple choice. You don't get to choose the three out of the six. You stand up here and you say, I, there's nothing that's going to separate me from you except death. That's your intent. Now, we live in a fallen world and we don't always make that intent. That's our intent. Well, God has the ability to keep his intentions. And he tells his people that I will never stop loving you. Remember George W. Bush, his daughter got a DUI or something, and it was all over the paper, and they said, what did you say to her? And he said something like this. It stuck in my memory. He says, I will never quit loving you, so quit trying to make me. That's a good dad. In other words, he, you know, he, I love you. I'm going to stick with you, and, you know, but quit trying me. And then it's compassion. They're new every day, the compassion. Your translation might have mercy. Uh, the mercy of God, the undeserved favor of God. In our misery, God is good. And those mercies come to us day by day. We don't get to save them up and store them. They're new every morning. Does it remind you of anything? Manna. You know, every morning they got manna. You couldn't save enough manna on Monday to get, you know, so you could sleep in on Tuesday, you know. You had to get manna every day. Except on uh, Saturday you got it two, two days worth it lasted. And one of the rabbis asked why God gave a manna every day and why does he give us mercies every morning? Why didn't he just give us a bunch of mercy? He said because if God gave us a year's worth of mercy at one time, we would come to him one time a year. But God has so arranged life that we realize by our situation we need God every day. 
It's our daily bread that we come for, our daily needs. If we got it any earlier, we would lose it. Do y'all lose as many things as I do? I'm always looking for my phone and my keys. I even look for my shoes sometimes. Uh, and in my office, I'm always looking for my books. What box did I put that in? I had to get Sarah up here to find one of the files that I had. We, If we didn't get new mercy every day, we'd not have mercy. Remember Corey Ten Boom's great illustration? She asked her dad, what's going to happen? You know, when the Jews are all gone and then they come and they take the people that have been hiding the Jews and they might take us to one of these prison camps and he said, God will give us grace and mercy then. And she said, but what happens? All these what ifs. You've lived there, haven't you? What if? What if the test is bad? What if the news isn't good? What if? What if? What if? And what Corey Ten Boom's dad says, remember when I gave you the train ticket was right before you got on the train and God will give you grace when you need it, and mercy too. The mercy of God. And then the last thing is His faithfulness. Faithfulness means He's dependable. Faithfulness is used to describe the pillars that held up the temple. Nobody's faithful. Nothing else is faithful. Nobody else is faithful. Anything else, according to Job's friends, in Job chapter 8, I think it was Bildad the Shuhite. Bildad the Shuhite accused Job of having a trust in a spider's web, and when he leaned on it, it broke. And although Bildad wasn't right about everything, he's right about that. Anything you trust besides God is like a spider's web. I don't want to embarrass anybody, so I won't mention David's name. Uh, but now that fighting Bo. Sometimes, you know, they hire people from the local area to be guides and these people come in and uh, sometimes they are people that have these fancy guns and this one guy had a fancy gun and I think Billy Brewer had given it to him if I remember it right, but let's stay with that. And so they got out there to, to hunt and so he got that fancy gun that Billy Brewer had given him for helping support the team and thing jammed, wouldn't shoot. He turned to the redneck, well, not everybody in rules was redneck. He turned to the guide and said, uh, what kind of gun you got? He said, I got one from Walmart. He says, is it any good? He said, every time I pull the trigger, it shoots. It's faithful. It's faithful. Every time you turn to God, he's going to give you grace and mercy. He's going to hear your prayer every time. He's never going to let you down. He might not tell you exactly what you want to hear or answer in the way you do, but he's not going to shut off your prayer. Then the last thing we see is the confidence of this hope. This confidence of hope is not only, it could be considered part of the confession, but after he says, great is your faithfulness, uh, you're, he goes on to say, the Lord is my portion, therefore I wait on him. The Lord is good to those who hope in him. It is good to wait quietly on the Lord. It is good for the man to bear the yoke while he's... He says, I'm confident in this one thing. God is good. God is good. 
What does that mean? It means everything God ought to be, He is. He's benevolent. He's gracious. He's full of mercy. He's good. In everything He does, He's good. We have to see that. We have to drag that up every now and then before our mind's eye and remind ourselves. George Mueller Loved his wife dearly. I think she was his wife for 38 years. I remember that from somewhere. And she died. And uh, he did her funeral several days afterwards. And his outline was this. George Mueller, you remember, had the orphanage. We're talking about the 1800s, I think. His, his points were this. The Lord is good and did good by giving her to me. The Lord was good... And did good in giving her to me for so long. And the Lord is good and did good by taking her from me into heaven. The Lord is good. His goodness is forever. You see, that's what our hope is. The Lord is good. The Lord is our portion. The portion is everything. The portion is the same word I think that the Levites had for their inheritance. Uh, their inheritance wasn't a piece of land. Their inheritance was God was their portion. And that's what Jeremiah is saying. The Lord is my portion. The Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. So you have God being enough. I want to close with this one thing and and. Listen carefully if I, if I can find it. Thomas Boston uh, was a Scottish Presbyterian, and he talked about uh, the Lord is my portion and God is good. And here's what he said. Christians, God is an all-sufficient portion. His power is all-sufficient to protect you. His wisdom is all-sufficient to direct you. His wisdom, His mercy is all sufficient to pardon you. His goodness is all sufficient to provide for you. His word is all sufficient to support you and strengthen you. His grace is all sufficient to adorn you and enrich you. His spirit is all sufficient to lead you and to comfort you. What more could you desire? God is a sufficient portion to secure your souls, to supply your needs, to satisfy all your desires, to answer all your expectations to suppress all your enemies, to bring you to glory, what more can you ask? God's grace is sufficient, and great is His faithfulness to us. Let's pray. Father, we meditate on You. We drag up those attributes, and we thank You that You're good, You're gracious, You're merciful, You're loving, You're kind, You're just, and You're holy in all of those things. And we are convicted of uh, how little we meditate on your word and how little we store in our treasure house of your wisdom and knowledge. Help us to do better. And Father, some have never trusted you. They've never called out upon you. I pray that they would do that today. And some are having trouble today uh, being hopeful. Help them to drag out those promises of your presence with them and your goodness for them. Help them to have hope for today and strength for tomorrow. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.